Welcome to the NCO Journal Podcast, where we explore NCO professional development. This is a podcast series where we discuss published articles with authors and provide a forum for the open exchange of ideas, information, and solutions. I'm your host, Chago Zapata, Managing Editor of the NCO Journal at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And with us today is Tony Mena, NCO Journal Senior Editor. Today, we discuss the article, Build a Ladder of Discipline, One Rung at a Time, with Sergeant Major Dennis Cronin, Brigade Operations Sergeant Major, 3rd Security Force Assistance Brigade, Fort Hood, Texas. Thank you for joining us. Before we kick things off, Sergeant Major, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a 19 Zulu by way of 19 Delta. I joined the Army in 2000 via CAVSCO. Uh, so I've done that my entire career. Um, coming up on 22 years tomorrow, actually. Um, recently graduated from the Sergeant Major Academy and uh, I've been serving as the Operations Sergeant Major for both the squadron and now the brigade for the third Security Force Assistance Brigade. Uh, pretty much held every leadership position you can think about. Um, I've served in combat as a team leader, as a squad leader, uh, to include time as a sniper team leader, uh, platoon sergeant, and first sergeant. Um, so my, my career and all of my awards and stuff is the same as everybody else at this position, I would imagine. Um, got my degree uh, while I was at the Sergeant Majors Academy, my master's degree, uh, which was pretty awesome to be able to to culminate my time there with completing that prestigious course as well as walking away with my master's, uh, which I obviously hope to utilize to set myself up for success as I look towards retirement here pretty pretty soon, hopefully sooner rather than later. All right, well, let's get started here. Can you give us a brief description of your article? The intent behind the article is actually, uh, it kind of evolved over time. And, and what it really boiled down to was, you know, throughout my 20 plus year career, as a non-commissioned officer, every one of us has been pulled into a room someplace and, uh, and and been involved in some kind of an LPD process. And the typical forum is, you know, a sergeant major or first sergeant stands before you. And they always like to talk about standards of discipline or they like to talk about awards, all the ad- admin stuff. And, uh, and I get frustrated with it because it's the same thing every time we talk about it, but it, it basically turns into somebody that's a, that's in charge of a formation telling you that you're messed up. Um, and we continue to be messed up apparently because we lack discipline all over the place. So I came up with this idea a long time ago of trying to lead my own LPD. And, uh, and rather than tell people that discipline's important, tell them how we can achieve it. And, uh, and what caused me to write the article is, you know, the farther you climb the ladder of promotion, you know, the further and further away you get from standing in front of soldiers. I don't have any responsibility to soldiers where I am right now. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty much a, a high paid desk jockey you know, at the at the operations process. Uh, and, and I miss it. I miss being in front of soldiers and being able to share uh, in my experiences and stuff. And I felt, you know, this was an important an important article uh, to be able to get out there because if I can't stand in front of people and do it myself, I figured the, the next best thing was to to write about it and uh, and see if I could get get it submitted, uh, which I did, and have people, um, you know, capable of of reading the words and, and hopefully it uh, you know it manifests within some units out there and uh, we can make some change. That's really why why I decided to write it. What was the inspiration behind the rungs of a ladder approach that you wrote about? I mean, that that's what inspired that. For me, I'm a, I'm a very visual individual. 
Uh, I think that you know you can tie uh, visuals to pretty much every process. And for me, achieving discipline uh, at the team level or, or really at any echelon in the Army uh, or across the spectrum of our, our DOD, um, I think you could tie everything to some form of a visual. And I see achieving discipline as a process and it's a step process. So, you know, just throughout my years of leading, you know, I was I was promoted uh, pretty early, um, like a lot of NCOs. I got I got picked up, got promoted to sergeant at two years in. So I've essentially been a, an NCO for 20 out of my 22 years, and I've learned a lot, um, you know, throughout that time, and, and I've kind of been able to connect certain dots, if you will. Um, so based solely on the fact that I can sit here and have a conversation all day long, but a lot of people are, you know, they, they're visual species like myself. I, I looked at it as uh, a steps, and then the steps just turned into a ladder to me. So, you know, being able to create that that depiction of, you know, one rung at a time, you can't you can't jump straight to discipline. And, and that's kind of, I mean, we might talk a little bit more about that, but that's the intent behind the article, is, is you can't just expect people the moment they join the Army or the Marines or the Navy, uh, that they're just inherently going to be disciplined. They're not, especially in this new generation. People, people ask why a lot, uh, and, and rightfully so. They should ask why they're doing certain things. Um, but leaders ought to figure out how they can achieve discipline and it starts with the first rung. It starts with being present in those individuals' lives. Uh, and, and of course, the latter theory is that you can't skip. You, you got to start and you got to climb um, because without one, you can't achieve or attain the other. Uh, so that's really why I came up with the idea of using the rungs of the ladder. This approach, do you, do you think it's, has it been successful for you? Could you give us some examples of how, how that's worked out for you? I think that I've always done it without realizing it. Like, I, I mean, as far as, me as a leader, it's like I said earlier, you know, one of the reasons that I chose to write this article is because I don't have the ability to stand before soldiers anymore. Uh, I do, it's hard though, especially in this organization, it's all NCOs and above here. But I, it was it was probably, without a doubt, my my favorite part about being in the military was, was leading soldiers uh, in, in being in front of them. Well, I'm compassionate and passionate about what I do, and I'm very passionate about building upon relationships with those uh, who are supposed to trust me, uh, especially in combat. And I've always tried to be present. Um, and every day, you know, I see soldiers as a sponge that are willing uh, and yearning to learn something new and taking that experience that I've, uh, you know, obtained through, you know, whether it's leading in combat or, you know, going to some MOS enhancing courses, you know, graduating ranger school or, uh, the reconnaissance surveillance leader course, like all these things that I've that I've learned over the years, brand new soldiers don't have that. They haven't been. So when you stand in front of them, you're present and you teach them something. If you're the first individual that they've been, you know, that they learned something new about uh, and you're the person that taught them, they're going to continue to look up to you on a daily basis. So being present has to happen. And then through that, you build upon that competence and credibility that's required. Um, and I've just always kind of done that. And how I gauge whether or not, you know, to back to your question, has this worked for me? How I think all leaders need to gauge their success leading people. Uh, I mean, you can talk about the good things you did in the moment, but for me, it's those individuals that I'm no longer standing over, but they still reach out. So I have soldiers and, and NCOs that I've been fortunate enough to, to work with and lead. They continue to communicate with me even though they've got their own sergeant major, or they've got their own first sergeant, I'm the one they choose to talk to. So that 
is how I know whether or not this process has worked well for me. I feel like uh, your article really struck a chord with me because uh, I came up in the, the Marine Recon um, community as a corpsman, and I think like the rungs of your ladder are exactly what all my really good leaders did. I mean, leading from the front, establishing expectations, and it made you really like want to work harder for them. Um, yeah. So, man, I read your article. I was just like, oh, my goodness, somebody nailed it. Um, but my question here is you talk in the beginning of your article about the empathy slash discipline divide. And I was hoping you'd explain a little bit more about that. And with your tours in combat, do you feel like there's a difference between, I guess, with the empathy discipline divide, uh, a combat scenario versus a garrison scenario? Uh, I think it's important that we establish relationships as leaders. Um, without establishing true relationships, you know, you're not going to know your soldiers and they're not going to know you. And, and what I'm really trying to get at, and it's the, it's the culmination of the, of the article, if you will, is getting to a place where soldiers want to do right because they don't want to let you down. And to get to that, that, that relationship, that level of relationship, that, that is the ultimate show of respect and trust. Um, and, and we operate going into the combat piece. We've operated in a, in a coin environment for the last 20 some odd years. And, uh, you know, the army and, you know, generally all the branches were focused on the future fight. Uh, we're focused on the potential of operating in large scale combat operations. Uh, that's great. I think that we should do that. Um, however, uh, I, I think, you know, the devastation that that the world saw during Desert Storm uh, with the United States ground forces annihilating one of the largest ground armies that told the rest of the world, like, we're probably not going to fight you that way ever again. And they've, they've gotten an opportunity to see how we fight over the last 20 years, uh, fighting a proxy war or counterinsurgency. So I think we can't lose, uh, lose sight of that. And that means that we're going to operate decentralized. So getting to a place of discipline, like I have to have that mutual trust within my subordinates to know that if I'm not, if I'm not always there with you, I at least know, or I have faith that you're doing the right thing. Uh, and, and, and again, the reason that they're going to do the right thing, hopefully, is because they respect the heck out of their leader and they don't want to let the leader down. It's not doing the right thing because they fear UCMJ, because uh, it, it, that stuff, it all goes, it's, it's humanity. It's all about a cost benefit analysis. You know, a soldier comes to work one day and says, you know, if I choose not to do something, what's the worst possible thing that's going to happen? I might get pulled into an office, get put at parade rest, get disciplined. They might, they might do a counseling, but is it worth it? But if doing something, you know, could lead to, you know, UCMJ beyond a scolding and they, you know, they, you know, we're talking about loss of, of potential pay, loss of promotion, well, cost benefit analysis, they're probably not going to do it. But that doesn't mean that they're doing things because they, they respect their leader. They're just doing things because they don't want to get in trouble for it. So that kind of goes into the leading by fear versus trying to establish that relationship discipline divide. And, and that is, that is what I tried to hint at. But to the empathy discipline divide i've seen that as well um i, I think especially in the, the combat arms community um you know i was raised with this you know having your armor on at all times um brushing things off sucking it up and driving on just drink water take motor you'll be fine uh don't be a baby all, all the terms that you've you've heard and uh and, and that's just how i always was 
and I would say I'm no longer that way. Actually, one of the things that that helped break that uh, within me was uh, was the resiliency training that I went to. Of course, I, I went to resiliency training when it first started, and I thought I was attending the new Army's Master Fitness Program. I had no idea what it was, uh, but I got a lot out of it, and uh, and I would say it softened my heart a little bit. Uh, and then I also served one of the one of my four companies as a first sergeant was the Warrior Transition Unit uh, here on Fort Hood. So I'm surrounded by uh, soldiers with legitimate problems, uh, whether it be physical or mental problems. And, uh, you know, you, you do get a sense of compassion fatigue, but if you're a compassionate leader, you know, you're going to start to become a little bit more empathetic, putting yourself in their position. And sometimes I've seen uh, leaders that lack presence. They don't know their soldiers. They don't know their, their subordinate NCOs the way they ought to. So when a soldier comes in and just looks off, that leader doesn't recognize it. So the, the instant you know, remark that typically comes from a non-present leader, uh, and I'll try not to use bad language, but you know, an S bag, if you will, if you know what I'm saying, you know, that person didn't shave or you look like, you know, you look like crap. Um, they instantly go into this individual obviously lacks discipline as opposed to what's really going on in this individual's life right now. Because I know that person, I know that's not them. Um, and some people, some leaders, especially again in the combat arms community, they do lack empathy because they think everybody has to be hard, but they don't even understand why. They just do because they're told to. It's just, it's like a robot, you know what I mean? Uh, so I do think there is a, an empathy discipline divide as well. You know, I can't achieve the discipline that I want to achieve if I'm being somebody's friend. How can I be their boss? you know, and, and establish relationships at the same time that I might have to discipline or tell those people to do hard things. Well, again, it goes back to the respect piece. If you do it right, if you follow the rungs effectively, you know, you can, I, I've done it. Like I've had soldiers that continue to talk to me to this day and, and I led them, you know, six to 10 years ago. And there's been many times where I've pulled those jokers in and, and I've had to get in their face a little bit and, and scold them. But usually what works best when, when you've established those relationships is looking, looking an individual in the eye and just saying, I'm disappointed and, and watching them melt because they're like, man, I feel really bad that I did something stupid and I disappointed this individual that I, that I so highly respect. And I think with your, uh, especially with your article too, it really, it really shows that like fear motivation is like leadership in the moment and relationship motivation is like leadership for a lifetime. I mean, I still have, I mean, I've been out, man, like almost 14 years. And I still have leaders and friends from my old unit that I call up all the time, once, twice a year, just checking in. And just because we had that amazing bond. And again, your article just really points that out. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to bring up, and, and, and when you were you were talking about, um, you know, the, the subject came up about being in combat, uh, the difference between, you know, combat and garrison. Um, there's, I, I'm, I'm sure there's got to be like, you you ne you can never be one way or the other. In other words, you, as a leader, you you there's there's still a little bit of fear that that has to be that's inspired in the troops. Um, you have to ha what I think is important is that you have to find the the uh, the good halfway point where they they are aware they need to be aware that there's consequences if they do certain things or that the uh, you know the, if the the discipline that that's being instilled or being uh, inspired uh, needs to be maintained. Otherwise, you know, there might be consequences. So I, I, I'm just thinking that I think there's, uh, it's up to every leader to, to, to find their, the middle path or the best, the path that best works for them. What do you, what do you think of that thought? 
Yes, and there is. There's so many different leadership styles out there. And um, at the end of the day, like in in no way, shape, or form was the the article uh, trying to negate the importance of discipline. I think on the contrary, it was trying to explain how important it is. You know, even going into the introduction, talking about it as a as a bedrock. You know, and and one of the things that's used uh, in pretty much every board, you know, that that a non-commissioned officer will go through to get promoted. They'll always ask a question about the blue book. Uh, who wrote the blue book? You know, Baron von Steuben, uh, who was he? You know, and, and why did he even exist? Well, it goes back to what I had mentioned. You know, when we first stood up the, the Continental Army, you know, these were these were people that were kind of somewhat voluntold. You know, they were working on a farm one day and next thing you know, they were throwing a musket and told to become a soldier. Uh, we didn't have discipline that, that didn't exist then. Um, you know, to, to bring good order and discipline and training into the army so that they could fight the superpower and eventually win. That was that was a huge undertaking. Um, things have changed. I mean, we are, we're an actual army now. You know, we send people through basic training and they learn a little bit of discipline while they're there. Uh, so there's different types of discipline. Um, I think sometimes we get narrow minded, though. Uh, if you look at a special forces organization compared to a conventional army, uh, people in the conventional side you know, when they see a soldier whose boots might be, you know, unbloused or, you know, below a, a certain eyelid, they lose their minds. They're not disciplined, this, that, and the other. And, and, and the funny thing about it is, you know, for our our army anyway, when you, when you talk about uh, the most, most critical of situations uh, or the most hostile places, the units that they send to go take care of the things are the ones that don't blouse their boots. They're the ones that don't shave all the time, and yet they're the most successful. So trying to draw a line between like, you know, telling telling somebody that they they lack a sense of discipline because of the way their uniform looks. Sometimes it gets weird, but I think again, we get too narrow minded. Um, so. You know, ultimately, again, to go back to your question, you know, every every leader has to determine um, the level and approach of discipline that they think they need and what I always try to convince my soldiers of is, look, I get it. I know some of the stuff that we're told to do is, you know, it's it's petty at best. But at the end of the day, I, I don't have a lot of time to lead you. I don't have a lot of time to train you. Um, and what I don't want is for something so small and petty to take us away from the opportunity to go, you know, shoot more rounds downrange, uh, put more face paint on and, and learn how to conduct reconnaissance operations. I, I don't. I don't have a lot of time to do it. And if, if we're getting scolded left and right because people lack the discipline um, to do something right, which causes me to be yanked away and then stand on the red carpet in front of somebody, then it's counterproductive to the to the mission itself. But again, I, I honestly believe that those petty things, soldiers will naturally just do it because they're being told to do it, but it depends on who's telling them. And if they respect you as a leader, they're gonna do it. Even if it's petty, even if they think it's dumb, they're going to do it. And again, they're doing it because they respect you and they don't want to let you down or they don't want to see you get in trouble. Uh, if they don't like you, you know, if you're, if you're not present in their lives and you haven't earned their respect, good luck. You're going to end up on the red carpet constantly. And all you're going to do is you're going to scold your soldiers for doing the wrong thing. And it's like bashing your head through a brick wall. It's not very effective. So they're clearly not climbing these rungs or doing something right. They're consistently failing and wondering why they have soldiers that, that lack discipline. It starts with you. They just don't look inward. I have a question on, um, I guess, personally for myself, when I read uh, and when I edit 
and as a fan of leadership. Um, I have a question on your time in combat and the personal touch. So what was a great leadership moment from your operations? I mean, it says you were in both theaters. What was like a standout leadership moment that really inspired you and, and made you be the leader you are today? So I like to consider myself humble. You know, I don't I don't really brag about much. Um, and, and it's hard to because you know, you know, people are going to hear these things. And, you know, some people had you can call it luck or you can call it greater success. I've been very, very lucky um, in my combat situations. Um, I've never lost a soldier in combat that was directly under me. Um, and, and some of that has to do with the people that I was fortunate enough to have. You know, I'm not that good, but uh, but we built a great bond. Um, and and for me, ultimately, like the, I think the greatest the greatest thing that can happen after after a deployment uh, to combat is to come home and know that every single one of the people you brought you brought back with you. Um, I would say that that's it's it's funny because this is the type of stuff that would get me in trouble, but that's okay. Um, what it's done for me is it's it's actually it's convinced me to to act on my convictions even more. So um, I've said no. We, we live we live by this mantra in the army that you can always get to yes. Um, and you can, but the problem is when we do that, you know, we're not taking account of the trail of tears, blood and sweat that was left behind getting to yes. Like NCOs, they will get the job done no matter what, um, but it burns us out over time. And, uh, and I say no. Uh, I've been told, hey, you have to do this. And and I've said, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. That doesn't make any sense tactically. Um, because at the end of the day, you might tell me that I'm going out to accomplish something, but I'm the guy on the ground that's responsible for bringing, you know, my men and women back. And, uh, and a lot of people will disagree 100% with that statement. And it's not that I wasn't executing missions. I've been deployed multiple times. Um, I, I've been deployed to some pretty, pretty well-known places, uh, Fallujah, the Argandab. I've been all around the the worst of the worst locations, and as a combat arms soldier, like there's there was never a time that I wasn't out on a patrol. Like I wasn't so lucky that they were like, hey, you're just gonna you're just gonna sit over here for an entire year and guard guard a you know a cop or something. Like that never happened. Um, but I was always concerned with life, and and I understood the basic of tactics, and I employed that. But I took my time. Uh, I executed patience. In, in the face of, of you know, at the enemy, I let them be the ones to make mistakes so that we weren't the ones doing it. Um, so that is just, it's it's letting me know at least that at a minimum that I did my part, and I owe that to I guess my my courage, not not the type of courage as in like jumping on a hand grenade. I I also have I also think that I execute you know sound judgment as well. I wouldn't do that. Uh, it's the courage to to say no. Or it's the courage to to question authority and be the adult in the room and help people understand that hey if you tell me that i have to do this and you're not thinking about this this and that then it's probably not, not going to go well so why don't you just let me decide how i do the how i conduct the operation and that ultimately is what the army wants that's that's the intent behind mission command don't tell me how to do stuff tell me that there's an objective and i'll accomplish it but I have to accomplish it based off of what what I know my, you know, whether it's my team, my squad, my platoon or my company, like within our capabilities, we'll accomplish it. But it might take longer than you want. Uh, it might be faster than you want, 
but ultimately you have to you have to allow me as the leader on the ground to make those decisions for my men and my women that are going to be the best suited to bring them home alive uh, and having been able to to effectively uh, bring every single one of my my men and women home from combat uh, has been huge and uh, it's, it's just inspired me uh, to continue to do what I've been doing because it's clearly worked. To expand on that real quick, um, I guess what rank were you when you went over? And then was there anyone over you that was a good role model and maybe a moment from there that they sort of explained either your uh, ladder process or just how to be a good leader that the, the way that you have done with this article for younger NCOs, was there anyone that did it for you? either in combat or in garrison? Like, what's a, just an amazing leader that just resonated with you? My first squad leader in the Army, this was prior to combat, um, was ultimately my inspiration to be the leader that I am today. Um, because he, he embodied everything that, that the, if there was a figmented leader in this article, he was that person. Uh, I, I looked up to that individual. I thought they were a god. I was a brand new private. Um, so... Having an NCO that was competent and, and, you know, as a scout and that was willing to teach me something new every day, take me under their wing. Um, I trusted that individual. I would follow that individual into combat. Uh, I outrank that individual now. They got out of the Army, but uh, I, I would still look up to that person as my, not as my peer or subordinate, but as my leader. Um, and and that, was, that was prior to combat, but it, it ultimately set me on the path that that I've always been on because he he was just there every day he was there you know he, if I was doing something he was right beside me doing it uh, again leading from the front uh, sometimes he would you know give me the old rack on the back of the head and be like what are you doing that's dumb you know what I mean sometimes it's and, necessary uh, and that was okay it was okay it was necessary you know and uh and and then he'd be like let me show you like it wasn't he wasn't the leader that you know people feared, and when they saw it coming, they would take off running because they knew they were just going to get yelled at for something dumb for the day. Um, you know that wasn't that wasn't this type of leader. Um, absolutely respected 100% by every single person in the platoon, not just me. I was just the lucky one uh, that was able to call him my squad leader. Um, so he he also ultimately inspired who I am today. Uh, as far as in combat. Every everybody I was in combat with inspired me in a way, you know, they, they might not have inspired me so much as a leader, but, you know, to see to see men and women, you know, face fear head on, you know, in, in accomplish an objective out of concern for those on their left and their right. I mean, that should inspire inspire pretty much everybody. But I wouldn't say in combat that there was many. Um, I, I first deployed as a, as a sergeant, as a brand new sergeant. I was the only one in the platoon that had a lot of dismount experience. So I was attached to a, uh, I was in the third armored cavalry regiment. So I was on, on Bradley's, uh, but I never gunned a Bradley. I never, never drove a Bradley and uh, I never BC to Bradley because I was always doing dismount stuff. So I was leading the dismounts. Uh, so it was just me. It was me and, and uh, a group of nine soldiers walking up and down the streets of Fallujah at 21 years old. Um, which was super scary, but I, I, yeah, I didn't, uh, I wasn't inspired, I would say, um, by a whole lot. There was a lot of weird things that happened in that deployment though. You know, we were, we were essentially on the, 
on the verge of, of going into a coin fight, but we didn't even have like a doctrine for coin. So we were kind of figuring things out for a while and we did that for about five years until the coin manual came out in 2006. Um, so, you know, we kind of struggled through some things and I wouldn't say there was any leaders that I had that committed themselves to trying to figure stuff out. They were just, they were just good at doing what, what they've always done. And uh, that's uninspiring to me. Um, so yeah, might sound somewhat negative, but <laughs> I haven't had, I have not personally had many leaders like my first squad leader in the army. Um, what was your writing process? Cause we received a really good article and it required very little editing, just kind of trimming up. Um, so how did you submit something that was already pretty polished? All you do now at the Sergeant's Major Academy is freaking write papers. It's, it is not, you know, the old, the old crusty Sergeant's Majors that used to get out at 12 o'clock every day and have tea time. Uh, that's not the case now. So the Sergeant Major Academy teamed up with uh, CGSC, uh, General Staff College, um, when you go through the academy now, it's you're essentially earning a bachelor's degree in leadership and workforce development. The only way to to really ensure that that happens is to write a lot. So you do you do write, um, and so there's that's part of it. And then of course, I've been in college my whole career. So you know my associates, my bachelor's, my masters. I, it took me it took me about twelve years to earn an associate's and a bachelor's in the army. Because I could, I was nugging, nugging away on online schooling the whole time, uh, and then I knocked my master's out, uh, start to finish in eight months, um, which was hard, but I did that while I was at the academy, so that wasn't that long ago. So as far as you know, being able to write a paper, I just was like, hey, I'm, I completely understand how to do APA seven now, so I'm just going to write this the way I would anything, and and typically for me, it always starts with uh, just an outline. Just taking a look at the outline and you know I vision what I'm trying to say, and I went back in a few times and, and edited some stuff to try to make it sound a little bit better myself. But yeah, I mean that was it. Like, you know, I would tell any soldier like if you're not in college, get in college, because uh, I I actually I found an old counseling packet from back when I was like a, a brand new sergeant, and I was disgusted by the things I was writing. I was like, man, <laughs> who who let me write this? It was it was horrible, uh, but that's the Massachusetts public school in front of me. It was it was pretty bad, um, but I learned how to write over the years, and uh, and I think it's important. Um, it allows you to be able to to communicate and articulate. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, kind of going to, again back into some of the things I said. You know, yeah, you can always get to yes, but sometimes it's okay to say no. If you're going to say no, you better be able to to explain why in a way that an officer is going to going to look at you and say that's an intelligent individual. So I'm I'm willing to allow this to happen or let him do it his way because clearly he was able to articulate the why. Um, so do college, learn to write. It's it's beneficial, and then you can you know send an article up to the NCO Journal, and you guys don't have to edit much. I mean, it, it is a process, and it's like it's a constantly evolving process. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. The better you get at it, the more you can do it. Uh, and yeah. the more recognition and, and credibility, I guess you can you you have when you do it. So, uh, good job, and we appreciate your submission. You know, it's it's not again. I'm humble. It's not for me to to tout my horn and, and run around and be like, look, everybody, I published an article. You should go read it. Uh, but it is that clout, so I can you know give an LPD and say it's based off of this, and I can provide them a read ahead because I really want to build upon that dialogue because I'm not the smartest man in the world. 
there's going to be somebody in that room that's going to bring up points that I wish I had thought of. Uh, but if I can at least get this the momentum going so that LPDs in our future are, are less about, you know, here, I'm going to tell you why discipline's important. Like, got it. Like, we all know discipline's important, but yet we still struggle. The problem is that it's a consistent antagonist that we've yet to figure out. But I think that there's a way and, and it doesn't, it's not the only way. It's just, it's a way that I did. And uh, if we can get more people to think that way, I think ultimately we'll see less problems. Um, so with your leadership experience, because you've done like every leadership position, um, this is more of a practical answer for the force. Um, how can a leader or sergeant major, either one, I guess rank doesn't really matter, but how can they get their soldiers to write and generate discussions like you have done to improve the Army? I think it starts with uh, with explaining to them the outlet. Um, I only learned about you know, the NCO journal. I mean, I heard about it, but I only learned about, you know, our ability to write and then submit articles and stuff uh, while I was at the academy. So I don't think that it's, um, I don't think it's blasted out loud enough to the force. So I think more sergeants major that are coming back from the academy probably need to, to express the value that exists there uh, so that people know that there's a way because You'd be shocked, or maybe you wouldn't be shocked, but there's some extremely intelligent soldiers out there um, that have some really, really credible ideas. And uh, it starts with giving them an outlet to, you know, to write and, you know, and and get the conversation going in the first place. Uh, So it begins there. But then the the next part about it is, you know, they have to care. You know, you got to find those soldiers that actually, actually care. And, and if an NCO, uh, you know, hears a conversation or sits down with one of their soldiers and, you know, a soldier presents an idea or something, they should encourage them. You know, it's all about the encouragement piece. Like NCOs need to encourage their soldiers. Like, hey, that's amazing. That's a great idea. You should write something about it. Give them the time to do it and help them through the process. Because um, I think that's the only way to encourage people to do it is show them that there's a way, give them the time to do it, encourage them that the things that they're talking about have value and uh, and could absolutely change or impact the way things are done in the army. Uh, thank you for being with us for for taking the time to to have this conversation with us and to expand on on your excellent article. And thank you to our audience. Remember to put your knowledge to the page, submit articles, and get published with the NCO Journal. Don't forget to check out our webpage and follow us on social media. We'll catch you next time on the NCO Journal podcast.